Section 13, Chapter 20 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S. T. Macduff. The History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 20, Section 13. Thus, a Whig ministry was gradually forming. There were now two Whig secretaries of state, a Whig keeper of the Great Seal, a Whig first lord of the Admiralty, a Whig chancellor of the Exchequer. The Lord Privy Seal, Pembroke, might also be called a Whig, for his mind was one which readily took the impress of any stronger mind with which it was brought into contact. Seymour, having been long enough a commissioner of the Treasury to lose much of his influence with the Tory country gentlemen who had once listened to him as to an oracle, was dismissed, and his place was filled by John Smith, a zealous and able Whig, who had taken an active part in the debates of the last session. The only Tories who still held great offices in the executive government were the Lord President, Kerr Martin, who, though he began to feel the power was slipping from his grasp, still clutched it desperately, and the First Lord of the Treasury, Godolphin, who meddled little out of his own department, and performed the duties of that department with skill and assiduity. William, however, still tried to divide his favours between the two parties. Though the Whigs were fast drawing to themselves the substance of power, the Tories obtained their share of honorary distinctions. Milgrave, who had, during the late session, exerted his great parliamentary talents in favour of the King's policy, was created Marquess of Normandy, and named a cabinet councillor, but was never consulted. He obtained at the same time a pension of three thousand pounds a year. Kerr Martin, whom the late changes had deeply mortified, was in some degree consoled by a signal mark of royal approbation. He became Duke of Leeds. It had taken him little more than twenty years to climb from the station of a Yorkshire country gentleman to the highest rank in the peerage. Two great Whig earls were at the same time created dukes, Bedford and Devonshire. It ought to be mentioned that Bedford had repeatedly refused the dignity which he now somewhat reluctantly accepted. He declared that he preferred his earldom to a dukedom, and gave a very sensible reason for the preference. An earl who had numerous family might send one son to the temple and another to a counting-house in the city. But the sons of a duke were all lords, and a lord could not make his bread either at the bar or on change. The old man's objections, however, were overcome, and the two great houses of Russell and Cavendish which had long been closely connected by friendship and by marriage, by common opinions, common sufferings, and common triumphs, received on the same day the greatest honor which it is in the power of the crown to confer. The gazette which announced these creations announced also that the king had set out for the continent. He had before his departure consulted with his ministers about the means of counteracting a plan of naval operations which had been formed by the French government. Hitherto the maritime war had been carried on chiefly in the Channel and the Atlantic. But Louis had now determined to concentrate his maritime forces in the Mediterranean. He hoped that, with their help, the army of Marshal Noël would be able to take Barcelona, to subdue the whole of Catalonia, and to compel Spain to sue for peace. Accordingly, Tourville's squadron, consisting of fifty-three men of war, set sail from Brest on the 25th of April, and passed the Straits of Gibraltar on the 4th of May. William, in order to cross the designs of the enemy, determined to send Russell to the Mediterranean with the greater part of the combined fleet of England and Holland. A squadron was to remain in the British seas under the command of the Earl of Berkeley. 
Talmash was to embark on board of the squadron with a large body of troops, and was to attack Brest, which would, it was supposed, in the absence of Tourville and his fifty-three vessels, be an easy conquest. That preparations were making at Portsmouth for an expedition in which the land forces were to bear a part could not be kept a secret. There was much speculation at the Rose and at Garraway's touching the destination of the armament. Some talked of Rhee, some of Oleron, some of Rochelle, some of Rofort. Many, till the fleet actually began to move westward, believed that it was bound for Dunkirk. Many guessed that Brest would be the point of attack, but they only guessed this, for the secret was much better kept than most of the secrets of that age. Russell, till he was ready to weigh anchor, persisted in assuring his Jacobite friends that he knew nothing. His discretion was proof even against all the arts of Marlborough. Marlborough, however, had other sources of intelligence. To those sources he applied himself, and he at length succeeded in discovering the whole plan of the government. He instantly wrote to James. He had, he said, but that moment ascertained that twelve regiments of infantry and two regiments of marines were about to embark under the command of Talmash for the purpose of destroying the harbour of Brest and the shipping which lay there. This, he added, would be a great advantage to England. But no consideration can or ever shall hinder me from letting you know what I think may be for your service. He then proceeded to caution James against Russell. I endeavoured to learn this some time ago from him, but he always denied it to me, though I am very sure that he knew the design for more than six weeks. This gives me a bad sign of this man's intentions. The intelligence sent by Marlborough to James was communicated by James to the French government. That government took its measures with characteristic promptitude. Promptitude, indeed, was necessary, for when Marlborough's letter was written, the preparations at Portsmouth were all but complete, and if the wind had been favourable to the English, the objects of the expedition might have been attained without a struggle. But adverse gales detained our fleet in the Channel during another month. Meanwhile a large body of troops was collected at Brest. Vauban was charged with the duty of putting the defences in order, and under his skilful direction batteries were planted which commanded every spot where it seemed likely that an invader would attempt to land. Eight large rafts, each carrying many mortars, were moored in the harbour, and some days before the English arrived all was ready for their reception. On the sixth day of June the whole Allied fleet was on the Atlantic, about fifteen leagues west of Cape Finisterre. There Russell and Berkeley parted company. Russell proceeded toward the Mediterranean. Berkeley's squadron, with the troops on board, steered for the coast of Brittany, and anchored just without Camaret Bay, close to the mouth of the harbour of Brest. Talmash proposed to land in Camaret Bay. It was therefore desirable to ascertain with accuracy the state of the coast. The eldest son of the Duke of Leeds, now called Marquess of Kermarton, undertook to enter the basin and to obtain the necessary information. The passion of this brave and eccentric young man for maritime adventure was unconquerable. He had solicited and obtained the rank of rear admiral, and had accompanied the expedition in his own yacht, the Peregrine, renovated as the masterpiece of shipbuilding, and more than once already mentioned in this history. Cutts, who had distinguished himself by his intrepidity in the Irish War, and had been rewarded with an Irish peerage, offered to accompany Kermarton, Lord Mon, who, desirous it may be hoped to efface by honourable exploits the stain which a shameful and disastrous brawl had left on his name, was serving with the troops as a volunteer, insisted on being of the party. The Peregrine went into the bay with its gallant crew, and came out safe, but not without having run great risks. 
Kermartin reported that the defences, of which, however, he had seen only a small part, were formidable. But Berkeley and Talmash suspected that he overrated the danger. They were not aware that their design had long been known at Versailles, that an army had been collected to oppose them, and that the greatest engineer in the world had been employed to fortify the coast against them. They therefore did not doubt that the troops might easily be put on shore under the protection of a fire from the ships. On the following morning, Kermartin was ordered to enter the bay with eight vessels and to batter the French works. Talmash was to follow with about a hundred boats full of soldiers. It soon appeared that the enterprise was even more perilous than it had on the preceding day appeared to be. Batteries, which had then escaped notice, opened on the ships a fire so murderous that several decks were soon cleared. Great bodies of foot and horse were discernible, and by their uniforms they appeared to be regular troops. The young rear admiral sent an officer in all haste to warn Talmash. But Talmash was so completely possessed by the notion that the French were not prepared to repel an attack that he disregarded all cautions, and would not even trust his own eyes. He felt sure that the force which he saw assembled on the shore was a mere rabble of peasants, who had been brought together in haste from the surrounding country. Confident that these mock soldiers would run like sheep before real soldiers, he ordered his men to pull for the beach. He was soon undeceived. A terrible fire mowed down his troops faster than they could get on shore. He had himself scarcely sprung on dry ground when he received a wound in the thigh from a cannonball and was carried back to his skiff. His men re-embarked in confusion. Ships and boats made haste to get out of the bay, but did not succeed till four hundred seamen and seven hundred soldiers had fallen. During many days the waves continued to throw up pierced and shattered corpses on the beach of Brittany. The battery from which Talmash received his wound is called, to this day, the Englishman's death. The unhappy general was laid on his couch, and a council of war was held in his cabin. He was for going straight into the harbor of Brest and bombarding the town. But this suggestion, which indicated but too clearly that his judgment had been affected by the irritation of a wounded body and a wounded mind, was wisely rejected by the naval officers. The armament returned to Portsmouth. There Talmash died, exclaiming with his last breath that he had been lured into a snare by treachery. The public grief and indignation were loudly expressed. The nation remembered the services of the unfortunate general, forgave his rashness, pitied his sufferings, and execrated the unknown traitors whose machinations had been fatal to him. There were many conjectures and many rumors. Some sturdy Englishmen, misled by national prejudice, swore that none of our plans would ever be kept a secret from the enemy while French refugees were in high military command. Some zealous Whigs, misled by party spirit, muttered that the court of Saint-Germain would never want good intelligence while a single Tory remained in the cabinet council. The real criminal was not named, nor till the archives of the House of Stuart were explored was it known to the world that Talmash had perished by the basis of all the hundred villainies of Marlborough. Yet never had Marlborough been less a Jacobite than at the moment when he rendered this wicked and shameful service to the Jacobite cause. It may be confidently affirmed that to serve the banished family was not his object, and that to ingratiate himself with the banished family was only his secondary object. His primary object was to force himself into the service of the existing government, and to regain possession of those important and lucrative places from which he had been dismissed more than two years before. He knew that the country and the Parliament would not patiently bear to see the English army commanded by foreign generals. 
Two Englishmen only had shown themselves fit for high military posts, himself and Talmash. If Talmash were defeated and disgraced, William would scarcely have a choice. In fact, as soon as it was made known that the expedition had failed, and that Talmash was no more, the general cry was that the king ought to receive into his favour the accomplished captain who had done such good service at Walcourt, at Cork, at Kinsale. Nor can we blame the multitude for raising this cry, for everybody knew that Marlborough was an eminently brave, skilful, and successful officer. But few persons knew that he had, while commanding William's troops, while sitting in William's council, while waiting in William's bedchamber, formed a most artful and dangerous plot for the subversion of William's throne, and still fewer suspected the real author of the recent calamity, of the slaughter in the Bay of Camaray, the melancholy fate of Talmash. The effect, therefore, of the foulest of all treasons was to raise the traitor in public estimation. Nor was he wanting to himself at this conjecture. While the royal exchange was in consternation at this disaster of which he was the cause, while many families were clothing themselves in mourning for the brave men of whom he was the murderer, he repaired to Whitehall, and there, doubtless with all that grace, that nobleness, that suavity, under which lay, hidden from all common observers, a seared conscience and a remorseless heart, he professed himself the most devoted, the most loyal of all the subjects of William and Mary, and expressed a hope that he might, in this emergency, be permitted to offer his sword to their majesties. Shrewsbury was very desirous that the offer should be accepted, but a short and dry answer from William, who was then in the Netherlands, put an end for the present of all negotiation. About Talmash the king expressed himself with generous tenderness. "'The poor fellow's fate,' he wrote, "'has affected me much. I do not indeed think that he managed well, but it was his ardent desire to distinguish himself that impelled him to attempt impossibilities.' The armament which had returned to Portsmouth soon sailed again for the coast of France, but achieved only exploits worse than inglorious. An attempt was made to blow up the pier at Dunkirk. Some towns inhabited by quiet tradesmen and fishermen were bombarded. In Dieppe scarcely a house was left standing. A third part of Havre was laid in ashes, and shells were thrown into Calais, which destroyed thirty private dwellings. The French and the Jacobites loudly exclaimed against the cowardice and barbarity of making war on an unwarlike population. The English government vindicated itself by reminding the world of the sufferings of the thrice-wasted Palatinate, and as against Louis and the flatterers of Louis, the vindication was complete. But whether it were consistent with humanity and with sound policy to visit the crimes which an absolute prince and a ferocious soldiery had committed in the Palatinate, on shopkeepers and laborers, on women and children, who did not know that the Palatinate existed, may perhaps be doubted. Meanwhile, Russell's fleet was rendering good service to the common cause. Adverse winds had impeded his progress through the straits so long that he did not reach Cartagena till the middle of July. By that time the progress of the French arms had spread terror even to the Escurial. Noailles had, on the banks of the Tar, routed an army commanded by the Viceroy of Catalonia, and on the day on which this victory was won, the Brest squadron had joined the Toulon squadron in the Bay of Rosas. Palamos, attacked at once by land and sea, was taken by storm. Girona capitulated after a faint show of resistance. Ostalric surrendered at the first summons. Barcelona would, in all probability, have fallen, had not the French admirals learned that the conquerors of La Hogue was approaching. 
they instantly quitted the coast of Catalonia and never thought themselves safe till they had taken shelter under the batteries of Toulon. The Spanish government expressed warm gratitude for this seasonable assistance and presented to the English admiral a jewel which was popularly said to be worth near twenty thousand pounds sterling. There was no difficulty in finding such a jewel among the hordes of gorgeous trinkets which had been left by Charles V and Philip II to a degenerate race. But in all that constitutes the true wealth of states, Spain was poor indeed. Her treasury was empty, her arsenals were unfurnished, her ships were so rotten that they seemed likely to fly asunder at the discharge of their own guns. Her ragged and starving soldiers often mingled with the crowd of beggars at the doors of convents and battled there for a mess of pottage and a crust of bread. Russell underwent those trials which no English commander whose hard fate it has been to cooperate with Spaniards has escaped. The Viceroy of Catalonia promised much, did nothing, and expected everything. He declared that three hundred and fifty thousand rations were ready to be served out to the fleet at Cartagena. It turned out that there were not in all the stores of that port provisions sufficient to victual a single frigate for a single week. Yet His Excellency thought himself entitled to complain because England had not sent an army as well as a fleet, and because the heretic admirals did not choose to expose the fleet to utter destruction by attacking the French under the guns of Toulon. Russell implored the Spanish authorities to look well to their dockyards and to try to have by the next spring a small squadron which might at least be able to float, but he could not prevail on them to careen a single ship. He could with difficulty obtain on hard conditions permission to send a few of his sick men to marine hospitals on shore. Yet in spite of all the trouble given him by the imbecility and ingratitude of a government which has generally caused more annoyance to its allies than to its enemies, he acquitted himself well. It is but just to him to say that from the time in which he became First Lord of the Admiralty there was a decided improvement in the naval administration. Though he lay with his fleet many months near an inhospitable shore and at a great distance from England, there were no complaints about the quality or the quantity of provisions. The crews had better food and drink than they had ever had before. Comforts which Spain did not afford were supplied from home, and yet the charge was not greater than when, in Torrington's time, the sailor was poisoned with mouldy bread and nauseous beer. End of chapter 20, section 13. Recording by S. T. Macduff.